0: You stupid, ignorant, son-of-a-bitch, dumb bastard! Well, what the hell is supposed to do, you moron? So let it be written. So let it be done. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty, then. Hello, and welcome back. This is Storytime, and I am GamerDude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today, we're talking about words again. We haven't talked about words in a while, and you know me. I love talking about language, odd phrases, odd sayings, odd words. We've done a few episodes about this, and since we haven't done one in a while, I thought it was time. What prompted this topic to come up again for me was a discussion I was having with GamerDude Daughter about the word niche. We've talked about it before. The word niche, N-I-C-H-E is a word that has changed accepted pronunciations in this country over the past, I'd say, 50 years. And I've discussed it with her, I've discussed it with other people, I've posted about it online. Yes, I'm that kind of a nerd. I post things about language. I have discussions about the origins of words. It matters to me. Now, I know in the big scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. And the way language is evolving, people using abbreviations and abbreviating words, instead of saying, outfit, we have a fit check now, I get that. And I don't care, really. In the big scheme of world problems, pronunciations of words and origins of phrases, it's not a big problem, but it's one of those little pet peeves of mine that I like to focus on. It gives me something to think about rather than the dire straits we're in with global warming or climate change, as we prefer to say now. So we're going to talk about words because it's less stressful than talking about climate change or politics. The word that started it all for this week is niche, N-I-C-H-E. And as I've talked about before, the pronunciation of that word, niche, has become accepted. It's become accepted even though it's technically wrong. And I'm saying it's technically wrong because I have proof. Now, yes, language changes. I know my proof is 50 years old, but still, it's actually 60 years old. It's a 1963 edition of Webster's 7th New Collegiate Dictionary. I got this from my dad at a box of auction stuff years ago. I've had it for decades, obviously. And it's really cool because it has some old words and some old pronunciations, and it shows the way things used to be pronounced. It shows the origins of the words. It shows how they should be pronounced. It's a great little resource if you're a geek like me who likes this kind of stuff. It's useful to see how words have evolved. For instance, the word irregardless does appear in this 1963 dictionary, but under the definition for irregardless, it says nonstandard. Even back then, irregardless, which means the same thing as regardless, and people have used it improperly to say the word regardless. The definition of irregardless in this book is regardless. Just to give you a frame of reference, language has evolved to accept the word irregardless as an actual word, even though 60 years ago it was considered non-standard. And I'm sure if I go find a dictionary from 100 years ago, it won't even be in there. All right, I'm editing this to add. Irregardless first appeared in the Merriam-Webster's unabridged dictionary in 1934. Yes, it existed before then, but it first appeared in the dictionary in 1934. But anyway, that 1963 dictionary has one pronunciation of the word niche, which is niche. N-I-C-H-E is pronounced N-I-T-C-H. Niche. That's it. End of story. There's no alternate pronunciations. There's no non-standard pronunciations. There's one pronunciation, niche. The dictionary also seems to indicate that the derivation of the word may be from the French, which is where people get the niche pronunciation. Well, it looks like it must be French, so we're going to say it niche, kind of French-like. But the dictionary actually says possibly French. It's not entirely clear that it was of French origin. But people, being the way they are, they say, well, it looks French, so we're going to say it like it's French, even though up until the 1970s, nobody ever said anything but niche. Somewhere along the line, somebody latched onto that word and that spelling and said, well, it looks like it should be said niche, probably thinking about the word cash, not C-A-S-H, but C-A-C-H-E, although many people mispronounce that word as cachet, which is not how that word is said either. C-A-C-H-E is pronounced cash, originally. The word cash in that same 1963 dictionary is pronounced cash. C-A-C-H-E, which is a secret little hiding place, one of the many definitions, that word is pronounced cash. Nowadays, you'll hear people say cachet, but that's also incorrect. That's people looking at the word and saying, well, it looks like it should be pronounced this way, so I'm going to say it that way. Rather than look it up and figure out how to say it, People just make crap up. I'm surprised that they haven't looked at niche and say, well, it looks like it should be niche. Instead, they just go niche, both of which are wrong. And you're going to tell me, well, language evolves. Well, yeah, it does. Well, if it's possibly French derivation, it should be niche, shouldn't it? Mm -mm, not really. I don't think so. I mean, we're talking about the English language here. And here's why I don't think we should be changing pronunciations. I want you to write down six words for me. I'm going to spell them for you. I want you to write down these words, R-O-U-G-H, then write down T-O-U-G-H, then write down B-O-U-G-H, then write down C-O-U-G-H. Got two more for you. Write down D-O-U-G-H, and then finally write down T-H-O-R-O-U-G-H. All right, now we're going to pronounce those words together. You've written them down. Only two of those words rhyme, even though they're all spelled exactly the same way. So let's start at the top. Rough and tough. Okay. They rhyme. Beautiful. I don't know where the F sound comes from, but we're going with rough and tough. Great. Wait, how does bow fit into that? When the bow breaks? That doesn't make sense. But then there's cough. Well, there's the F sound. Again, I don't know where it comes from. There's no F in any of those words. But cough doesn't rhyme with tough, although tough rhymes with rough. And bow doesn't fit. What about dough? I'm making some dough in the bakery. Where? where's the F sound? Why doesn't it rhyme with cough or bow? Bow and dough don't rhyme. Well, we're trying to be thorough with this. Oh, wait. Thorough doesn't rhyme with any of them either. And there's no F. So you're telling me in a language that has all of these pronunciations and we have to say all those correctly, we can just change niche because we don't like the way it looks? Niche is niche. Niche is supposed to be niche. It's not supposed to be niche. It's supposed to be niche. Otherwise, rough, tough, buff, cuff, duff, and thoroughf would all sound the same, wouldn't they? They're all spelled the same. And these aren't the only words that are like that. I mean, we have words that we pronounce correctly every single day, although they don't look like they should be pronounced that way. There are so many. Think about it just for a second. We go visit Long Island. We don't go visit Long Island. Why don't we say Island? It looks like it should be said Island. We always cut our coupons out with scissors. We don't use skizzers, although it certainly looks like it should be said that way. Where's my skizzers? No, we use scissors. Well, this whole concept is kind of foreign to a lot of people. Why is it foreign? Why is it not forig?n There's a G in there. Why don't we say the G? What's up with that? My point is we pronounce these words correctly and we have for centuries. So why can't we get niche right? Why do we have to pretend, oh, well, the language evolves? Well, why can't Long Island evolve too? I'm just wondering. So, naturally, talking about language and thinking about language and looking things up got me thinking about phrases and other words and their origins and their meaning and where they came from. And so, I figured we had to talk about some of that stuff too, right? You know me, I love this stuff. For instance, I was curious about the word filibuster. We've heard a lot about filibusters in the Senate. Filibuster is actually an odd word when you think about it. Filibuster, what the hell does that mean? Now, the simple definition of that as we understand it today is a filibuster is a politician's verbal delaying tactic. A politician will get up and speak at length to delay a vote on a bill or a resolution. That's called a filibuster. Now, this is where we get into the deep weeds on these kind of things. This is the stuff that interests me, because it's kind of fascinating to me where this comes from. Filibuster comes directly from two Dutch words. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but I'm going to try. Vrij, V-R-I-J, meaning free... And buit, B-U-I-T, meaning boot. Translated to English, they literally mean freebooter, which was a word used in the 16th century to describe pirates. The French and Spanish versions of these Dutch words were used in the 16th century to describe pirates. The French had filibustier, the Spanish had filibustero. Freebooters were considered pirates. But when the word came to the United States, Freebooters was first used to describe adventurers who fomented rebellion in the Spanish colonies in Central America and in the Caribbean. These adventurers would go to the islands or go to the nations and proceed to give long speeches filled with political rhetoric to all of the local listeners trying to incite them to rebellion. And the speeches would go on and on and on and on, just like a filibuster. And that word filibuster came from this fomenting rebellion in Central America and the Caribbean and was used to describe the long speeches politicians would give to delay votes on bills. Now, to me, that's fascinating. A word used to describe pirates also describes the speeches that our elected politicians give in the United States Senate. It seems appropriate somehow. There's another political word that's out there. I've always wondered the origins of it, so I had to go look it up. We've heard a lot about it recently because it happens all of the time and it doesn't ever seem to get better. It always seems to get worse and it's always in court. It's this concept of gerrymandering. And what it is, is the legislature taking a picture of your state or your county, depending on where you are, and dividing it up into electoral districts that favor the party in power. Ordinarily, you would expect, well, we've got a state. We're just going to put a grid on it. We're going to divide it up into categories or sections or neighborhoods or whatever so that we can have everybody in these districts. There's a word district. We'll have everybody in these districts and they can vote. And everybody in the district will vote for whoever they want to represent them on the town council, in the state legislature, in the United States Congress. We're just going to go with this grid. And that's how we'll count the votes. Except that's not what they do. Gerrymandering is the practice of discarding that grid. I mean, a grid seems simple, right? No, no. The politicians figured out a way to make it look like they are doing something fair in the most unfair way possible. They don't use a grid. They look at the towns on the map in the area where they live. And they divide up the towns into a way that it looks like, okay, Joe Smith is going to get all of the votes in this area from these neighborhoods. So that's his district. The district may only be 10 blocks wide and 10 blocks long, but that's where Joe's votes are, so that's his district. Then Ron Jones also got a seat, but he comes from farmland, so his district may be 10 miles long by 7 miles wide, but it stretches across the river to some of the farmland over there, so we're going to draw his district a little bigger, a little narrower, with that little hitch at the end of it, where that farmland is across the river. And that's Ron's district. Gerrymandering is the practice of creating districts that favor the party in power so that they can stay in power. So we all get what gerrymandering is, but where did that name come from? Well, there's a story. There was a gentleman named Elbridge Gary. And yes, note the hard G. His name was pronounced Gary. He was one of the original signers of the Declaration of Independence. Good old Elbridge was a rabid Jeffersonian. He was an anti-federalist and he was governor of Massachusetts in the early 19th century. And Governor Gary discovered, you know, I'm in power. I can manipulate the electoral map a little bit to make sure that I stay in power. And that I can get my friends elected in their districts, too. So Gary had a large map of Massachusetts on his wall. And for the 1812 election, he drew up all kinds of districts there to favor his Jeffersonian friends. But the way the districts looked after he got done drawing stuff on the map... They resembled a salamander, at least according to newspaper editor Benjamin Russell. So they coined the phrase gerrymandering because Governor Gary created districts that looked like a salamander. It was a gerrymandered district. Now, the reason we pronounce it gerrymandering these days is because Americans change the pronunciation of things over the years. G-E, which is how his name was spelled, G-E-R-R-Y, G-E is usually a soft G sound, George. G-A would be a hard G sound, Gary. But over the years, Americans being the way we are, we took the G-E sound, gerrymandering, and stuck with it. So now anytime we're talking about gerrymandering, we're talking about what Governor Gary from Massachusetts did in the early 19th century. And we can thank him for the fact that everybody who's in power tries to stay in power employing similar tactics. Here's another one that I wanted to talk to you about. This one kind of strikes close to home for me because I've been asked this question before and I never really had a good answer for it. People would ask, what's the difference between a lawyer and an attorney at law? And the joke answer is, well, about 50 bucks an hour. But there actually is a difference. There's a real answer to this question. A lawyer is somebody skilled and taught in the law. Somebody who studies law to become a legal scholar. You get an actual JD degree. Juris doctor when you graduate from law school. An attorney does not necessarily have to be accomplished in the law. The roots of the word attorney go back to the Latin, which means to turn over to another, a turn. The earliest attorneys were thus not necessarily legal attorneys, but they were anyone designated to take the place of another, somebody who could stand in for another, someone authorized to act for another. Someone to make financial or religious or health decisions for another. Power of attorney. You can have somebody's power of attorney without being a lawyer. An attorney essentially represents the interests of another person. A lawyer is somebody who understands and knows the law, but may not be representing another person. An attorney at law would go into court representing another person's interests because they have knowledge of the law and they're an attorney. A lawyer could be a professor lecturing at a university. A lawyer might just do research for the Supreme Court. So why do some lawyers prefer attorney at law to lawyer? Well, it's probably the $50 an hour difference. Either that or it looks better on the business card. I do have one more for you, and it has to do with the word kidnapping. I mean, kidnapping sounds pretty simple, right? Kid has always meant child. Nap was the 17th century variation of the word nab. Someone you would nab a child, it would be called kidnapping. But the origins of the word actually go back to the 1600s, when the early colonies in the New World, that means us, the United States, long before it was the U.S., the colonies were desperate for unskilled laborers. They were desperate for apprentices, the skilled craftsmen. There simply weren't enough people around to do all the labor that needed to be done. That accounts for part of the slave trade, too. But that's something we could talk about for about 15 podcast episodes. But what also happened in addition to the slave trade was that the colonists offered Britishers the enticement of indentured servitude. A young Britisher who wanted to come to the New World would promise seven years of free labor to the owner, to the homeowner, or to the craftsman, or to whoever they were going over to stay with. Seven years of labor. In exchange, the person received free passage to the New World and a payment after the seven years of service, usually in the form of clothing and tools, perhaps a piece of land to live on, depending on the kind of servitude you were getting into. And this worked relatively well for the early part of the 1600s, the early part of the 17th century, and then they ran out of volunteers. And I use the term volunteer broadly. People living in the colonies used professional recruiters, fancy way of saying human traffickers, who were paid on a commission to lure away able-bodied laborers from their jobs in England to get them to go to the colonies and work there. When people stopped volunteering to become indentured servants, these human traffickers back in the early 17th century, they would find volunteers, if you know what I mean. And that's where the phrase kidnapping really came from. These human traffickers would grab young people, some just children, some 12, 13, 14 years old, They would just grab the kids, put them on ships, send them to the colonies, and they would be volunteered to work as indentured servants in the New World. By 1682, the kidnapping in England had become such a problem, they actually passed a law specifying that no child under the age of 14 could be indentured without the consent of his parents. Fourteen. Older than 14, they could put you on a ship and send you overseas. But under 14, you had to get consent. But that's where the phrase kidnapping grew to prominence. Because it was happening so much in England that they had to pass a law against it. But kidnapping is a word we still use to this day. So there you have it. We've revisited some words. We've gone back to my roots of finding weird things to get upset about. I'm really good at that, asked Mrs. Gamer Dude. I found the weirdest things to get worked up about. This is one of them. But as a result, now you know about gerrymandering, you know about filibusters, you know about attorneys at law and you know about kidnapping. Look at that. It's been a full day now, right? Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening. As always, I appreciate your support, and I appreciate the time you spend here. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves, and I'll see you when I see you.